Preface to The Phenomenology of Mind, Volume 1 by George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, translated by James Black Bailey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Preface Part 1 In the case of a philosophical work, it seems not only superfluous, but in view of the nature of the subject, even inappropriate and inexpedient, to begin, as writers usually do, with a preface explaining the end the author had in mind, the circumstances which gave rise to the work, and the relation which the writer takes it to stand to other treatises on the same subject, written by his predecessors or his contemporaries. For whatever it might be suitable to state about philosophy in a preface, say, an historical sketch of the main drift and points of view, the general content and results, a string of desultory assertions and assurances about truth, this cannot be accepted as the form and manner in which to expound philosophical truth. Moreover, because philosophy has its being essentially in the element of universality, which encloses the particular within it, the end or final result seems, in the case of philosophy, more in that of the other sciences to have absolutely expressed the complete fact itself in its very nature, for which the mere process of bringing it to light would seem, properly speaking, to have no essential significance. On the other hand, in the general idea of, for example, anatomy, the knowledge of the parts of the body regarded as lifeless, we are quite sure we do not possess the objective concrete fact, the actual content of the science, but must, over and above, be concerned with particulars. Further, in the case of such a collection of items of knowledge, which has no real right to the name of science, any talk about purpose and such like generalities is not commonly very different in manner from the descriptive and superficial way in which the content of the science, these nerves and muscles, etc., are themselves spoken of. In philosophy, on the other hand, it would at once be felt incongruous were such a method made use of, and yet shown by philosophy itself to be incapable of grasping the truth. In the same way, too, by determining the relation which a philosophical work professes to have to other treaties on the same subject, an extraneous interest is introduced, and obscurity is thrown over the point at issue in the knowledge of truth. The more the ordinary mind takes the opposition between true and false to be fixed, the more it is accustomed to expect either agreement or contradiction with a given philosophical system, and only to see the one or the other in any explanation about such a system. It does not conceive the diversity of philosophical systems as the progressive evolution of truth, rather it seems only a contradiction in that variety. The bud disappears when the blossom breaks through, and we might say the former is refuted by the latter. In the same way, when the fruit comes, the blossom may be explained to be a false form of the plant's existence, for the fruit appears as its true nature in place of the blossom. These stages are not merely differentiated, they supplant one another as being incompatible with one another, but the ceaseless activity of their own inherent nature makes them at the same time moments of an organic unity, where they not merely do not contradict one another, but where one is as necessary as the other, and this equal necessity of all moments constitutes from the outset the life of the whole. But contradiction in the case of philosophical system is not usually conceived in this way, and again the mind perceiving the contradiction does not commonly know how to relieve it or to keep it free of one-sidedness, or to recognise, in what seems conflicting and inherently antagonistic, the presence of mutually necessary moments. The demand for such explanations, as also the attempt to satisfy the demand, very easily pass for the essential business philosophy has to undertake. 
Where would the inmost truth of a philosophical work be found better expressed than in the purposes and results? And in what way could these be more definitely known than through the distinction from what is produced during the same period by others working on the same field? If, however, such procedure is to pass for more than the beginning of knowledge, if it is to pass for actually knowing what a philosophical system is, then we must, in point of fact, look on it as a device for avoiding the real business at issue, an attempt to combine the appearance of being in earnest and taking trouble about the subject with an actual neglect of the subject altogether. For the real subject matter is not exhausted in its purpose, but in working the matter out, nor is it the mere result attained in the concrete whole itself, but the result along with the process of arriving at it. The purpose by itself is a lifeless universal, just as a general drift is a bare activity in a certain direction, which is still without its concrete realisation, and the naked result is the corpse of a system which has left its guiding tendency behind. Similarly, the distinctive difference of anything is rather the boundary, the limit of the subject. It is found at that point where the matter stops, or is what the matter is not. To trouble oneself in this fashion with the purpose and results, or again with the differences, the positions taken up and the judgments passed by one thinker and another, is therefore an easier task than perhaps it seems. For instead of laying hold of the matter itself, a procedure of that kind is all the while away from the subject altogether. Instead of dwelling within it and becoming absorbed by it, knowledge of that sort is always grasping at something else. Such knowledge, instead of keeping to the subject matter and giving itself up to it, never gets away from itself. The easiest thing of all is to pass judgments on what has a solid and substantial content. It is more difficult to grasp it, and most of all difficult to do both together and produce the systematic exposition of it. The beginning of culture and the struggle to get out of the unbroken immediacy of naive psychical life has always to be made by acquiring knowledge of universal principles and points of view, by striving in the first instance to work up simply to the thought of the subject matter in general, not forgetting at the same time to give reasons for supporting it or refuting it, to apprehend the concrete richness and fullness contained in its various determinate qualities, and to know how to furnish a coherent and orderly account of it, and a responsible judgment of it. This beginning of mental cultivation will, however, very soon make way to the earnestness of actual life in all its fullness, which leads to a living experience of the subject matter itself, and, when in addition conceptual thought strenuously penetrates to the very depths of its meaning, such knowledge and style of judgment will be relegated to their due place in everyday thought and conversation. The systematic development of truth in scientific form can alone be the true shape in which truth exists. To help to bring philosophy nearer to the form of science, that goal where it can lay aside the name of love of knowledge and be actual knowledge, that is what I have set before me. The inner necessity that knowledge should be science lies in its very nature, and the adequate and sufficient reason for this is simply and solely the systematic exposition of philosophy itself. The external necessity, however, so far as this is apprehended in a universal way, and apart from the accident of the personal element and the particular occasioning influences affecting the individual, is the same as the internal. It lies in the form and shape in which the process of time presents the existence of its moments. To show that the time has come to raise philosophy to the level of scientific system would, therefore, be only the true justification of the attempts which aim at proving that philosophy must assume this character, because the temporal process, 
would thus bring out and lay bare the necessity of it nay more would at the same time be carrying out that very aim itself when we state the true form of truth to be its scientific character or what is the same thing when it is maintained that truth finds the medium of its existence in notions or conceptions alone i know that this seems to contradict an idea with all its consequences which makes great pretensions and has gained great widespread acceptance and conviction at the present time a word of explanation concerning this contradiction seems therefore not out of place even though at this stage it can amount to no more than a dogmatic assurance exactly like the view we are opposing if that is to say truth exists merely in what or rather exists merely as what is called at one time intuition at another time immediate knowledge of the absolute religion being not being the centre of divine love but the very being of this centre of the absolute itself from that point of view it is rather the opposite of the notional or conceptual form which would be required for systematic philosophical exposition the absolute would not be grasped in conceptual form but felt intuited it is not its conception but the feeling of it and the intuition of it that are to have the say and find expression if we consider the appearance of a claim like this in its more general setting and look at it from the level which the self-conscious mind at present occupies we shall find that self-consciousness has got beyond the substantial fullness of life which it used to carry on in the element of thought beyond this naive immediacy of belief beyond the satisfaction and security arising from the sense of certainty which conscious life possessed regarding its reconciliation with ultimate reality wherever present whether inner or outer self-conscious mind has not merely passed beyond that to the opposite extreme of insubstantial reflection of self into self but beyond this too it has not merely lost its essential and concrete life it is also conscious of this loss and of the transitory finitude characteristic of its content turning away from the husks it has to feed on and confessing that it lies in wickedness and sin it reviles itself for doing so and now desires from philosophy not so much to bring it to knowledge of what it is as to obtain once again through philosophy the restoration of that comfortably solid and substantial mode of existence it has lost philosophy is thus expected not so much to meet this want by opening it up in the compact solidity of substantial existence and bringing this to the light and level of self-consciousness it is not so much to get chaotic conscious life brought back to the orderly ways of thought and the simple unity of concept as to run together what thought has divided asunder suppress the notion with its distinctions and restore the feeling of existence what it wants from philosophy is not so much insight as edification the beautiful the holy the eternal religion love these are the bait required to awaken the desire to bite not the notion but ecstasy not the march of cold necessity in the subject matter but ferment and enthusiasm these are to be the ways by which the wealth of concrete substance is to be stored and spread out to view with this demand there goes the strenuous effort almost perfervidly zealous in its activity to rescue mankind from being sunken and what is sensuous vulgar and of fleeting importance to raise men's eyes to the stars as if men had quite forgotten the divine and were on the verge of finding satisfaction like worms in mud and water time was when man had heaven decked and fitted out with endless wealth of thoughts and pictures the significance of all that is lay in the thread of light by which it was attached to heaven instead of dwelling in the present 
as it is here and now, the eye glided away over the present to the divine away, so to say to a present that lies beyond. The mind's gaze had to be directed under compulsion to what is earthly and kept fixed there, and it has needed for a long time to introduce that clearness which only celestial realities had into the crassness and confusion surrounding the sense of earth things earthly, and to make attention to the immediate present as such, which was called experience, of interest and value. Now we have apparently the need for the opposite of all this. Man's mind and interest are so deeply rooted in the earthly that we require a like power to get them raised above that level. His spirit shows such poverty of nature that it seems to long for the mere pitiful feeling of the divine in the abstract and to get refreshment from that like a wanderer in the desert craving for a merest mouthful of water. By the little which this can thus satisfy the needs of the human spirit we can measure the extent of its loss. The easy contentment in receiving or stinginess in giving does not suit the character of science. The man who only seeks edification, who wants to envelop in mist the manifold diversity of his earthly existence and thought, and craves after the vague enjoyment of this vague and indeterminate divinity, he may look where he likes to find this, he will easily find for himself the means to get something he can rave over and puff himself up with. But philosophy must be aware of the wish to be edifying. Still less must this kind of contentment, which holds science in contempt, take upon itself to claim that raving obscurantism of this sort is something higher than science. These apocalyptic utterances pretend to occupy the very centre and the deepest depths. They look askance at all definiteness and preciseness of meaning, and they deliberately hold back from the conceptual thinking and the constraining necessities of thought as being the sort of reflection which, they say, can only feel at home in the sphere of finitude. But just as there is a breadth which is emptiness, there is a de depth which is empty too, and we may have an extension of substance which overflows into finite multiplicity without the power of keeping the manifold together in the same way we may have an insubstantial intensity which keeping itself as mere force without actual expression is no better than superficiality. The force of mind is only as great as its expression, its depth only as deep as its power to expand and lose itself when spending and giving out its substance. Moreover, when this unreflective emotional knowledge makes a pretext of having immersed its own very self in the depths of absolute being, and of philosophizing in all holiness and truth, it hides from itself the fact that instead of devotion to God, it, rather by this contempt for all measurable precision and definiteness, simply confirms in its own case the fortuitous character of its content, and on the other endows God with its own caprice. When such minds commit themselves to the unrestrained ferment of sheer emotion, they think that, by putting it over self-consciousness and surrendering all understanding, they are thus God's beloved ones to whom he gave his wisdom in sleep. This is the reason, too, that, in point of fact, what they do conceive and bring forth in sleep is dreams. For the rest it is not difficult to see that our epoch is a birth-time and a period of transition. The spirit of the age has broken with the world as it has hitherto existed, and with the old ways of thinking, and is in the mind to let them all sink into the depths of the past and to set about its own transformation. It is indeed never at rest, but carried along the stream of progress ever onward. But it is here, in the case of the birth of a child, after a long period of nutrition and silence, the continuity of the gradual growth inside of quantitative change it is suddenly cut short by the first breath drawn. There is a break in the process, a qualitative change, and the child is born. In like manner the spirit of the time, growing slowly and quietly ripe, 
for the new form it is to assume, loosens one fragment after another of the structures of its previous world. That it is tottering to its fall is indicated only by symptoms here and there, frivolity and again ennui, which are spreading in, in the established order of things, the undefined foreboding of something unknown. All these are hints foretelling that there is something else approaching. Gradual crumbling to pieces, which did not alter the general look and aspect of the whole, is interrupted by the sunrise, which in a flash and at a single stroke brings to view the form and structure of the new world. But this new world is perfectly realised, just as little as the newborn child, and it is essential to bear this in mind. It comes on the stage to begin, in its immediacy, in its bare generality. The building is not finished when the foundation is laid. Just as little is the attainment of a general notion of a whole, the whole itself. When we want to see an oak with all its vigour of trunk, its spreading branches and mass of foliage, we are not satisfied to be shown an acorn instead. In the same way science, the crowning glory of a spiritual world, is not found complete in its initial stages. The beginning of the new spirit is the outcome of an extensive transformation of manifold forms of spiritual culture. It is the reward which comes after a chequered and devious course of development, and after much struggle and effort. It is a whole which, after running its course and laying bare all its contents, returns again to itself. It is the resultant abstract notion of the whole. But the actual realisation of this abstract whole is only found when these previous shapes and forms, which are now reduced to ideal moments of the whole, are developed anew again, but developed and shaped within the new medium and within the meaning they have thereby acquired. While the new world makes its first appearance merely in general outline, merely as a whole lying concealed and hidden within a bare abstraction, the wealth of the bygone life, on the other hand, is still consciously present in recollection. Consciousness misses in the new form the detailed expanse of content, but still more the developed expression of form by which distinctions are definitely determined and arranged in their precise relations. Without this last feature, science has no general intelligibility and has the appearance of being an esoteric possession of a few individuals, an esoteric possession because in the first instance it is only the essential principle or notion of science, only its inner nature that is to be found, and a possession of a few individuals because at its first appearance its content is not elaborated and expanded in detail, and thus its essence is turned into something particular. Only what is perfectly determinate in form is at the same time exoteric, comprehensible, capable of being learned and possessed by everybody. Intelligibility is the form in which science is offered to everybody and is the open road made plain for all. To reach rational knowledge by our intelligence is the just demand of the mind which comes to science. For intelligence, understanding, verstand, is thinking, pure activity of the self in general. And what is intelligible, verstandje, is something from the first familiar and common to the scientific and unscientific mind alike, enabling the unscientific mind to enter the domain of science. Science, at its commencement, when as yet it has neither got as far as detailed completeness nor perfection of form, is exposed to blame on that account. But to suppose this blame attached to its essential nature would be as unjust as it is inadmissible not to be ready to recognise the demand for that further development in fuller detail. In the contrast and opposition between these two aspects, the initial and the developed stages of science, seem to lie the critical knot which scientific culture at present struggles to loosen, and about which it is not so very clear. One side parades the wealth of its material and the intelligibility of ideas, 
the other pours contempt at any rate on the latter and makes a parade of the immediate intuitive rationality and divine quality of its content although the first is reduced to science perhaps by the inner force of truth alone perhaps too by the noisy bluster of the other side and though having regard to the reason and nature of the case it did feel overborne yet it does not therefore feel satisfied as regards to these demands for greater development for those demands are just but still unfulfilled its silence is due only in part to the victory of the other side it is half due to that weariness and indifference which are usually the consequence when expectations are being constantly awakened by promises which are not followed up by performance the other side no doubt at times makes an easy enough matter of getting a vast expanse of content they haul it in a lot of material already familiar and arranged in order and since they are concerned more especially about what is exceptional strange and curious they seem all the more to be in possession of the rest which knowledge in its own way was finished and done with as well as to have control over what was unregulated and disorderly hence everything appears brought within the compass of the absolute idea which seems thus to be recognized in everything and to have succeeded in becoming a system in extenso of scientific knowledge but if we look more closely at this expanded system we find that it has not been reached by one and the same principle taking shape in diverse ways it is the shapeless repetition of one and the same idea which is applied in an external fashion to a different material the wearisome reiteration of it keeping up the semblance of diversity the idea which by itself is no doubt the truth really never gets any farther than just where it began as long as the development of it consists in nothing else than such repetition of the same formula if the knowing subject carries around everywhere the one inert abstract form taking it up in external fashion whatever material comes its way and dipping it into the element then this comes about as near to fulfilling what is wanted viz a self-origination of the wealth of detail and self-determining distinction of shapes and forms as any chance fantasies about the content in question it is rather a monotonous formalism which only comes by distinction in the matter it has to deal with because it is already prepared and well known this monotonousness and abstract universality are maintained to be the absolute this formalism insists that to be dissatisfied herewith argues an incapacity to grasp this standpoint of the absolute and keep a firm hold on it if it was once the case that the bare possibility of thinking something in some other fashion was sufficient to refute a given idea and the naked possibility the bare general thought possessed and passed for the entire substantive value of actual knowledge we find here similarly all the value ascribed to the general idea in this bare form without concrete realization and we here too see the style and method of speculative contemplation identified with the dissipating and resolving what is determinate and distinct or rather with hurling it down without more ado and without any justification into the abyss of vacuity to consider any specific fact as it is in the absolute consists here in nothing else than saying about that while it is now doubtless spoken of as something specific yet in the absolute in the abstract identity a equals a there is no such thing at all for everything there is all one to pit this single assertion that in the absolute all is one against the organized whole of determinate and complete knowledge or of knowledge which at least aims and demands complete development to give out its absolute as the night in which as we say all cows are black that is the very naivety of this vacuous knowledge the formalism which has been deprecated and despised by recent philosophy and which has arisen once more in philosophy itself will not disappear from science even though its inadequacy is known and felt till the knowledge of absolute reality has become quite clear as to what its own true nature consists in having in mind that the general idea 
of what is to be done if it precedes the attempt to carry it out facilitates the comprehension of this process it is worth while to indicate here that some rough idea of it with the hope at the same time that this will give the opportunity to set aside certain forms whose habitual presence is a hindrance in the way of speculative knowledge in my view a view which the developed exposition of the system itself can alone justify everything depends on grasping and expressing the ultimate truth not as substance but as subject as well at the same time we must note that concrete substantiality implicates and involves the universal or the immediacy of knowledge itself as well as the immediacy which is being or immediacy qua object for knowledge if the generation which heard god spoken of as the one substance was shocked and revolted by such a characterization of his nature the reason lay partly in the instinctive feeling that in such a conception self-consciousness was simply submerged and not preserved but partly again the opposite position which maintains thinking to be merely subjective thinking abstract universality as such as it is exactly the same bare uniformity is undifferentiated unmoved substantiality and even if in the third place thought combines with itself the being of substance and conceives immediacy or intuition ausschwang as thinking it is still a question whether this intellectual intuition does not fall back into that inert abstract simplicity and exhibit and expound reality itself in an unreal manner the living substance further is that being which is truly subject or which is the same thing truly realized and actual solely in the process of positing itself or in mediating with its own self its transitions from one state or position to the opposite as subject it is pure and simple negativity and just on that account a process of splitting up what is simple and undifferentiated a process of duplicating and setting factors in opposition which process in turn is the negation of indifferent diversity and of the opposition of factors it entails true reality is merely this process of reinstating self-identity of reflecting in its own self in and from its other and is not an original and primal unity as such not an immediate unity as such it is the process of its own becoming the circle which presupposes its end or its purpose and has its end for its beginning it becomes concrete and actual only by being carried out and by being the end it involves the life of god and divine intelligence then can if we like be spoken of as love disporting with itself but this idea falls into edification and even sinks into insipidity if it lacks seriousness the suffering the patience and the labour of the negative per se the divine life is no doubt undisturbed identity and oneness with itself which feels no anxiety over otherness and estrangement and none over the surmounting to the estrangement but this per se is abstract generality where we abstract from its real nature which consists in its being objective to itself consciousness itself in its own account for sich zu sein and where consequently we neglect altogether the self-movement which is the formal character of its activity if the form is declared to correspond to the essence it is just for that reason a misunderstanding to suppose that knowledge can be content with the per se the essence but can do without the form that the absolute principle or absolute intuition makes the carrying out of the former or the development of the latter needless precisely because the form is as necessary to the essence as the essence is to it absolute reality must not be conceived of and expressed as an essence alone i e as an immediate substance or as pure self-intuition of the divine 
but as a form also, and with the entire wealth of the developed form. Only then it is grasped and expressed as really actual. The truth is the whole. The whole, however, is merely the essential nature reaching its completeness through the process of its own development. Of the absolute it must be said that it is essentially a result. Only at the end it is what it is in very truth. And just in that consists its nature, which is to be actual, subject, or self-becoming, self-development. Should it appear contradictory to say that the absolute has to be conceived essentially as a result, a little consideration will set this appearance of contradiction in its true light. The beginning, the principle, or the absolute, as at first immediately expressed, is merely the universal. If we say all animals, that does not pass for zoology. For the same reason, we see at once that the words absolute, divine, eternal, and so on, do not express what is implied in them and only mere words like these, in point of fact, express intuition as the immediate. Whatever is more than a word like that, even the mere transition to a proposition, is a form of mediation, contains a process towards another state from which we must return once more. It is this process of mediation, however, that is rejected with horror, as if absolute knowledge were being surrendered, when more is made of mediation than merely the assertion that it is nothing absolute, and does not exist in the absolute. This horrified rejection of mediation, however, arises as a fact from want of acquaintance with nature, and with the nature of the absolute knowledge itself. For mediating is nothing but self-identity working itself out through an active self-directed process, or in other words it is reflection into self, the aspect in which the ego for itself, objective to itself. It is pure negativity, or reduced to its utmost abstraction, the process of bare and simple becoming. The ego, or becoming in general, this process of mediating is, because of its being simple, just immediacy coming to be, and is immediacy itself. We misconceive, therefore, the nature of reason if we exclude reflection or mediation from ultimate truth, and do not take it to be a positive moment of the absolute. It is reflection which constitutes the truth and final result, and yet at the same time does away with the contrast between result and the process of arriving at it. For this process is likewise simple, and therefore not distinct from the form of truth which consists in appearing as simple in the result. It is indeed just this restoration and return to simplicity. While the embryo is certainly in itself implicitly a human being, it is not so explicitly. It does not take itself to be a human being for sich. It is only the latter in the form of developed and cultivated reason, which has made itself to be what it is implicitly. Its actual reality is first found here, but this result arrived at is itself simple immediacy, for it is self-conscious freedom, which is at one with itself, and has not set aside the opposition it involves and left it there. It has made account with it and has become reconciled to it. End of part one of the preface, recording by Morris and Elsie Bedfordshire.